All right, it wasn't a terrific year. 2022 saw a lot of people passing, people such as yours truly getting a diagnosis he didn't like, but uh, there were some good results from 2022. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Stay tuned. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. What a time it was, growing up in the 50s, with America clearly the light of the world. We were taught back then that history moves ever forward in a straight line. Progress was simply how it worked. A few less than pleasant surprises came along the way and disquieted my juvenile patriotic optimism, like police dogs turned loose on our southern black American neighbors, the war in Vietnam, in which America pretended to be the savior but was clearly the imperialist invader. Throughout it all, America, America was where the oppressed of the world looked with hope. Our stated aspirations remained high and indeed worthy. It dawned on me that mm, history does not, in fact, move in a straight line. It moves in many directions at the same time. November 2016 delivered a profound earthquake. The uh, election of a wacko with orange skin derailed the Democratic nominee, who made it clear she thought it was her turn to be president. Uh-huh. A tremendous amount of bad things have happened since then. And despite his blatantly lying insistence that the election of 2020 was stolen from him, he, in fact, was defeated by someone we on the left considered a standard party centrist. Well, I'm in my 70s now, and I have come to see that history can never be predicted. There are always surprises. 2023 has just begun. We got through a truly bizarre 15-round race to become Speaker of the House, for what that's worth now. And it's not like the door is shut on what happened in 2022. There's not this just, you know, wall between the two the different years. Is Ian Dury and the Blockheads saying back in 2014, there are indeed reasons to be cheerful coming out of 2022. Somewhat. <laughs> in her new article on Counterpunch, co-founder of the peace group Code Pink and the human rights organization Global Exchange, uh, Medea Benjamin, uh, writes of 10 surprisingly good things that happened in 2022. Boy, we need some of that. Uh, so as we go forward cautiously into the unknown of this year, could it be that we can take some encouragement with us that it hasn't been all bad, that some good steps uh, were taken and it led to 2023? Uh, Medea, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Bert. Uh, you write, with wars raging in Ukraine, Yemen, Somalia, and elsewhere, Roe versus Wade overturned, and our resources being wasted on militarism, militarism instead of addressing the climate crisis, which really affects national security, it can be hard to remember the hard 
one progress being made. And she continues, as we end a difficult year, let's pause to remind ourselves of some of the positive changes that happened in 2022 that should inspire us to do more in the year to come. While some are only partial gains, they're all steps toward a more just, peaceful, and sustainable world. Boy, that is music to my ears, and I don't always hear it. Now, uh, Medea Benjamin, you've been an exceptionally visible uh, activist, taking on injustices throughout the planet, bravely and consistently calling out the bad guys. There's some really ugly stuff in the 21st century. In general, maybe this is an unfair question, do you consider yourself an optimist? Oh, absolutely. I think it would be very hard to keep doing this work for so many decades without being optimistic. Uh, it's what gets me up in the morning is the idea that we can bring about some changes. Otherwise, why do it? Yeah, true. And and boy, it's it's nice to see every now and then, hey, look at that. We did something. Really? So we're going to do that on this discussion. So let's let's go through your list uh, 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 that was on Counterpunch of, of surprisingly good things that happened in the year just ended. Though the president in my earliest years, Dwight Eisenhower, was certainly, by today's standards, a liberal in terms of domestic policy. But in foreign policy, he stepped on the gas pedal of American imperialism with great gusto. Countries to our south were being defined by President Eisenhower as our backyard. So, of course, the U.S. had to control them and put some really nasty governments in place. But tell us about the hopeful new direction we've seen in 2022 in what Eisenhower called our backyard, as if we owned it, the so-called pink tide. What is the pink tide? What's good about it? What are some of the factors? Well, it's the second wave of progressive governments in the last two decades coming to power in Latin America. And it's very exciting because you have tremendous new leadership. Now, we just did see an attempted coup in Brazil, but it was put down. And the new president, uh, the um, who was formerly president and was then jailed and came out with this spectacular victory, yeah. uh, Ignacio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, in Brazil, really is a game changer. And then we had another game changer, which is Gustavo Petro in Colombia, uh, the country that was always sort of um, doing U.S. bidding in Latin America. And those are two very big, powerful countries. And then you have a third, which is Mexico. And there the president, AMLO, has been quite brilliant at navigating between the necessity of having a good relationship with the U.S. because of being yeah. on the border, yeah. uh, but also wanting to play a role in regional integration uh, and a certain degree of independence from the United States and demanding mutual respect. There was just a gathering called the Three Friends in which the presidents of Mexico, the U.S., and Canada came together and one of the first things that the president of Mexico said is we need the United States to stop treating us with disdain and instead 
go back to the idea of a good neighbor policy ah. where we, we have a mutual respect. And so I think that's what you see happening in Latin America, this call for more regional integration, the call for more progressive economic policies that help the poorest in Latin America, and um, uh, demanding that the U.S. change its policies, for example, towards Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, which has caused so much economic hardship with this kind of economic warfare that come from sanctions. So I think we also have to remember that it's the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. Oh, you talked about Eisenhower, but it goes back further than that. Oh, for sure. And so we're saying that this is the year to finally bury that Monroe Doctrine. And with the changing Latin America, we need a changing U.S. policy. And for those who, who may, everybody's heard of the Monroe Doctrine back when they were in, in you know, elementary school and high school. But it's what it basically does is said, we own this hemisphere. This is ours. You other countries can't come here. You other imperialist countries can't come here. This is our stuff. And boy, that's caused a lot of damage. And one of the things that a lot of people talk about is the, the so-called immigration crisis. And yeah, there's a lot of people who are trying to cross our borders. And you talk about pink tide and the changes in uh, south of our border, in, in the global south. I, I wonder if we are starting to learn why so many people risk everything. They leave their homes, they walk for months on end, why? What makes them leave their countries? And perhaps I wonder if 2023 will be a year that we realize, hey, you know, we're not going to stop them coming here if we continue uh, to support governments that do what they do in those countries. Talk about that a little bit, if you would, please. Well, that's a good observation. You know, Kamala Harris was given the portfolio uh, to uh do something about the root causes of migration, yes. which is quite laughable because, you know, it, it's uh, so much of it does go back to the issues of U.S. policy. Uh, and it's very complicated. You know, we could go back to the overthrowing of elected governments uh, decades ago. Uh, we can go to the supporting of uh, more repressive governments, mm -hmm. the militarization of U.S. actions, uh, whether it was the training of repressive uh, militaries at the School of the Americas right. or the basing of U.S. troops like in Colombia and militarizing the whole drug issue. Um, and then there's the gangs that were from Los Angeles that were exported back to Central America. You know, lots and lots of connections, the, uh, all the firearms coming from the United States that make their way to uh, Latin America, the weapons that the U.S. sells to countries in Latin America. All of this contributes to a, uh, an atmosphere of fear yes. and gangs and violence that people in Latin America have been escaping and then on top of that, you have to add the economic issues that um, things like the free trade agreement mm. in 
goes back to 1994, wiped out so much of the farming in Mexico mm. and caused mass migration back at that time. And most of the migrants today are economic migrants. So we can't uh, pin it on one particular thing, but certainly U.S. policy has not been helpful. And when I mentioned uh, U.S. policy towards Cuba, for example, strangling the Cuban economy at a time when it's really down because of the pandemic wiping out the tourist industry and then the effects of uh, inflation that people are feeling all over the world and um, the economic sanctions that were imposed by the Trump administration and are now continued by the Biden administration. So you have a, a, a policy that's really cruel, that's meant to harm the people so much that they will rise up against the government mm. and instead they flee the country. And so now you have over 200,000 people from Cuba who have left in the last year. It's like 2% of the population, wow. a huge number. And then you wonder, wait, why are these people leaving? Well, if we lift the sanctions, uh, if we normalize relations, we would see a lot of people choosing to stay instead of taking that perilous journey to try to get to the United States. And people only leave their homes in absolute desperation. I mean, you think about what would make you get up and leave your family and, or, or bring your family? It's just, we have to get to the desperation. And most of the times, Ah, it does seem that American policy, well, just stop them at the border, build a wall, stop them from coming in. Uh, as Rocky said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. It's not going Absolutely to Absolutely not. But, but it's, no. a, it's an opportunity. Maybe 2023 20, is an opportunity to, to look at this. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. And boy, it's a heavy lift, but we're getting there. We, are we, there's some good things that have happened. And our guest today is Medea Benjamin, who's written an article uh, titled uh, 10 Surprisingly Good Things That Happened in 2022. And uh, one of the good things is, is, is the economy in the United States, for example. And I know it's hard for young people today to believe, but in my youth, there was a middle class. Now, you're probably a lot younger than I am, but there was a middle class. Really, the reason for this was unions, a strong and powerful labor movement. In the following decades, corporate America seemed close to burying the labor movement. It just really dropped off population. But 20, as you say, 2022, in 2022, the U.S. labor movement caught fire. I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's really important. Do tell. Well, I think what we have seen in, in uh, Amazon and Starbucks are two very exciting examples of organizing in non-traditional ways uh, without the big unions um, and having tremendous uh, impact, not only in starting the unionization of these very big companies, but also sending a message around the country that it is possible uh, to organize in the face of very repressive response from those companies that have fired workers for uh, their um, efforts to organize, that have put lots of money into campaigns to stop the other workers from wanting to join the union. Uh, 
and in in the face of all that adversity, there have been gains. So I think it's um, given a, a a lift to workers around this country. We just saw striking workers, uh, nurses in New York, yes. that got some important gains from their efforts. And I think 2023, unfortunately, with the inflation, um, this is going to cut into the wages of working people. And we're going to see more efforts at organizing and unionizing, uh, which is really a, a positive response to the economic downturn. And, and uh, earlier in 2022, actually, I interviewed uh, author Michael Kazin, whom I'm sure you know, who, who wrote a book, What It Took to Win. And, and the bottom line there was movements, labor movements, for example, that helps, the, I mean, that gives a base for actual change. And you're right, I mean, the nurses, uh, it seems like uh, people who work on airplanes that we take for granted are getting a little bit... Uh, saying, hey, you know, these things are not being run right. Let's hear our voices. Give us some some say in it. I see a lot of, uh, there's a lot more support for unions than there had been before. I, I see that as a very hopeful sign. So there was a quite a bit of that in 2022. As you say, the labor movement caught fire. It's happening. And another thing that happened in 2022, a little bit amusing, I have to say, there was that illusory Red Wave. Remember that? I mean, quite frankly, before November of 2022, I I was a little scared. I was a little scared. And that that was a good thing from 2022. What happened to the expected Red Wave, notably in safe red states? What's your understanding of that, Medea? Well, my understanding is a couple of things. One is that young people showed up in record numbers. Uh, one out of every eight voters was under the age of 30. The other was that abortion rights turned out to be a big issue, uh, bigger than many thought. Uh, we see that not only by that statistic of all these young people coming out, because for a lot of them, uh, the abortion rights was the issue, but also where it was put on the ballot in states like California, Michigan, and Vermont, uh, and the, quote, red state of uh, voters rejected uh-huh. any of these amendments to declare there was no constitutional right to an abortion. So I think um, these are two important factors that contributed to the uh, the lack of a red wave and to the Democrats doing quite well in Congress and keeping the Senate. I'm on my way to the Congress as we speak And I think it's important to recognize that um, there is a lot of room for uh, us issues, even though the Democrats don't control the House anymore, um, that with things so close uh, and voters and and elected activists in uh, red states, very active on issues like the environment, like women's choice, um, that we can still push for positive things, probably not on the national level, but a lot more on the statewide level. Uh-huh. That, that's a very good point. And having, having been a, a state senator myself, a lot can happen at the state level. People 
tend to forget that. But uh, the states have been called laboratories of democracy, but but things can happen. I mean, uh, there's that old expression you see on a bumper sticker, you know, think globally, act locally. It works. It really does. And, and there's, there's opportunities there at, at the local level. And you talk about abortion. <laughs> it's been my thought for a while as a you know, solid pro-choice person that uh, Republicans have run you know, to, to overturn Roe versus Wade, oh, for 50 years. But, but it's like a dog chasing a car. Oops, what do you do when you get it? I don't think it's helped them. I don't think it's helped them at all. <laughs> and, and that, you know, that's one of the things that came out of 2022. We have a, a Supreme Court, which is uh, people, you know, they, they supposedly it doesn't matter to them what the public thinks. But boy, I think it does. What about this uh, opportunity from uh, Roe versus Wade now? We saw some good results uh, in the election of 2022. What about from now, do you think? Well, I think that's an issue that really does mobilize uh, particularly young women. Yeah. I see it here in uh, Washington. Uh, they're in the halls of Congress. There's a women's march that's coming up very soon that will probably get many thousands of people out. And uh, I think in general, uh, it is a issue that people really, really care about. And they're mobilizing in so many different ways. Uh, they're mobilizing on the local level. Yep. Uh, they're getting women ways to cross state borders to uh, get the care that they need. They're pushing to get the kind of uh, contraceptive help that um, is uh, now not available in some of the states to make it available. So I think we're going to see a continued pushback on that terrible Supreme Court decision and more efforts, particularly statewide, uh, to change these right. very draconian laws in some of these states. Yeah, there's going to be some real battles there. And I, I, I remember as, as you know, somebody who cared about this issue in the, in the 90s, thinking young women are not getting involved. They didn't feel like there was any threat. Like, you know, reproductive rights were just there. Boy, has that changed. 2022 was kind of a slap in the face. It was a wake-up call. And, man, it's worked. That is a very good thing, I think, to, to make people, to have increased awareness that choice is, is, is something real, that people really care about, that lives are at stake here. I mean, people have died from, you know, botched abortions. It's a fact. And we're waking up to that. That's a, a good thing to come out of 2022. And I, I did want to ask, there's one thing that's not on your top 10 list. There was an historic bipartisan celebration between Republican Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky and its Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, along with Republican Illinois Governor Mike DeWine, at the opening of a new bridge between the states as part of the new infrastructure law which makes me think of some of the work that my favorite president, Franklin Roosevelt, did uh, building up the real national security of the country. Many have been surprised that, well, Joe Biden has achieved some notable accomplishments. Uh, he, he's not getting a lot of kudos for it, but the fact is from 2022, the first major gun safety legislation in decades, an overhaul of the Electoral Count Act, a law to protect in, uh, interracial and same-sex marriage. He put the first black woman on the Supreme Court, and so far she's pretty impressive. Though he's, he's not bombastic. He's not a celebrity. 
But the New York Times write, yeah, writes, you have to give the boring, moderate, pragmatic, old white guy his due. That did come out of 2022. What, what, what are your thoughts on how much that may actually mean? Well, I acknowledge some of these gains on the domestic level. Uh, it, I work on the international level, and uh, I must say I've been extremely disappointed yeah. uh, with what uh, Biden has been doing and particularly what he has been not doing. Um, we just mentioned the issue of Cuba, not turning back those Trump-era sanctions, uh, not signing on that Iran nuclear deal right away, yeah, uh, which was the signature achievement of the Obama administration. And we all thought that was a no-brainer. Yeah. Uh, and then continuing, and this is not just him, this is the military-industrial congressional presidential complex, but continuing to up and up uh, the budget of the military. And um, mm. even though he did get us out of the war in Afghanistan in a very sloppy way, um, but we didn't get any peace dividend from that at all. Uh, in fact, the Pentagon budget is now $858 billion. Uh, and if you count other things in other departments, it's close to a trillion dollars now. Mm. And that's just, you know, it's insane. It's taking money it's away from all of the real needs that people have in this country. So, yes, we should give Biden his due for a number of good domestic things but recognize on the international level, um, it's just pretty much a continuation of a, of a militaristic policy towards the world. And looking at this Ukraine conflict, I think that there is so much that Biden could be doing to be calling for a ceasefire in negotiations. And then the rhetoric towards China, it's coming now even faster and more furiously from the Republicans, but it's also coming from the Democrats. And I think the American people in the world needs cooperation and peace. And that's not what we're getting from the people in Washington. <sighs> Boy, you're right about that. And, and I, I will confess to some naivete on my part. I I did not support Biden in the in the primary election here in New Hampshire. I supported Bernie Sanders. A big surprise, but uh, once he got in and and started to do some relatively liberal things, I was thinking, could there be a chance for a change in foreign policy? Boy, I was naive. I'm sorry, but it, it it's like the policy never changes. Democrat, Republican, uh, since since the uh, Eisenhower with the uh, the the brothers that uh, advised him on that the Dulles brothers uh, we have been uh, it's it's been so imperialistic and going back a bit to someone you're familiar with I'm sure Henry A Wallace who warned we don't need to do this we could get along we could cooperate but there's so much profit involved how it, that did not change in 2022 that did not get better right that that doesn't come on on the list of the good things no. <laughs> and you know irony of ironies in this new republican congress when there was the fight over the speaker one of the issues that these rebels uh, put out there is they wanted to see at least 75 billion dollars cut that. from the pentagon budget 
I, so go figure. <laughs> I, I, I noticed that. And, and, you know, in terms of imperialist foreign policy, uh, uh, Ron Paul, uh, right wing, I never agree with him. But he's been good on saying, hey, we don't need to keep doing this stuff. And a, a cut of $75 billion, I'm sorry, I don't care who makes it. It's a start. It's a good start. There is so much... I mean, you want people want national security. They want to feel secure in this country. Spending money on these weapon systems that make tremendous profits but don't do a damn thing, that's not the way to national security. And here's an opportunity for 2023, as it's always been there, quite frankly, as you realize, Medea, uh, to put pressure on, I don't know, it, it, it's like, Pressure doesn't, I don't know if it ever works on that. Uh, and, and you would think, I'm, I'm of the Vietnam generation, and it, it's like, hello, how could we not learn from Vietnam? Don't do that. If you go into a country and where you're not wanted, uh, it, it, it doesn't come out well. <laughs> and, and we just don't learn it. It's amazing. But uh, I don't know, have there been, I don't know if there have been any moves toward what you and I might consider progress in terms of foreign policy in 2022? I think there is a now a chance in 2023 for a better policy towards Latin America, given right. the immigration crisis. It seems that this administration now realizes that it has to make some changes. For example, uh, they are opening the embassy back up in Havana, giving visas yeah. out there so that people don't have to uh, try to get in illegally. Uh, so some, uh, and there's talks with the Maduro government now and uh -huh. dropping of the pretense that Juan Guaido is somehow the president there. Of course, that's because they want Chevron back in and the U.S. wants more oil coming from Venezuela. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> so uh, that might be a little better. And well, then in terms... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just thinking there's some significant violence in Africa, for example. I mean, the, the Saudi war in Yemen couldn't be happening without U.S. support. And there's some good news out of Ethiopia, I believe, as well. Well, there's good news out of Ethiopia, which was actually a, a peace plan that it seems to be holding. In fact, they're wow. collecting a lot of weapons from the uh, different warring parties. And uh, that was a very bloody two-year war that killed all hundreds of thousands of people, um, probably more people than are being killed in Ukraine. Uh, and yet wow. it looks like this peace, uh, uh, this peace treaty is actually uh, holding for now. So uh, that's a, a very positive development. And then in terms of other things in Africa, yeah. you know, it's interesting. The U.S. is very much uh, concerned about Chinese influence in Africa. And so that gives the U.S. a greater incentive in some ways uh, to find more ways to appeal to uh, the governments and people in Africa uh, and uh, appealing to them by sending in more uh, military and bases is not the way to go. <laughs> so I'm I'm hoping that in 2023 we might see more of an attempt to uh, do some good things and emulate the what the Chinese are doing in creating some important infrastructure projects and doing things that improve the lives of people in Africa. Um, maybe the U.S. will learn the lesson that that's the way mm. to make friends. 
Well, as I've often said, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. But, <laughs> but, 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 you know, and I had the opportunity to work uh, for George McGovern, and he used to say, we can do more, and I remember this quote, we can do more to dry up the swamplands of despair, which breeds, back then it was communism, with our medical help, our educational help, our infrastructure help, uh, than with all the military hardware in our arsenal. And we can do that in Africa. We, we have this tremendous, I mean, China knows this is tremendous opportunity in Africa, and it's in their interest to do so. And they're doing it. What are we doing there? I, I'm glad we're doing some good things. And I'm not sure, I, I, I kind of got, I'm not sure where things stand in Yemen right now. Do you, are you aware of that? Well, yes, there is. Uh, a, 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 a there has been a lull in the fighting, which is extremely positive. Yeah. But there's not a peace uh, pact yet, uh-huh. and the U.S. has still continued to be supportive of the Saudis, and that's why there's been an effort to have a war powers resolution in Congress, uh-huh. uh, which would stipulate that to give any support. Uh, like this to the Saudis that they're using in the war in Yemen, there would have to be a vote in Congress to do that. So it's been almost eight years now where the U.S. has been very involved in this war in Yemen, and it's never come up uh, for Congress to weigh in on this. And um, the other thing is not just uh, about dropping bombs uh, and a lull in that. There still is a blockade that is making it difficult to get in the humanitarian aid and the other resources uh, that Yemen needs. So there still needs to be a resolution of that conflict. And that's why there's been a lot of pressure in Congress uh, to try to get the Biden administration uh, to do more of what he said he was going to do when he campaigned, uh, calling Saudi Arabia pariah state. And then, you know, he went to Saudi Arabia, was rebuffed and that the Saudis didn't agree to increase oil production as Biden wanted. Um, so I think that was a, um, a, a lesson that the U.S. does not hold that much weight when it comes to influence. And I think that should mean that we should be doing the right thing, not supporting this extremely repressive government in Saudi Arabia that has caused this catastrophic situation in Yemen, but also is such an incredibly repressive government, perhaps the most repressive government in the world. And uh, yet, you know, Biden talks about we're upholding democracy against dictatorships. And Uh, here we've been uh, in bed with the Saudi dictatorship for many decades now. Yeah. And I've heard that there that that people are you know frightened of the government there, but they would love to have a different government and and overthrow it. But uh, power. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. And we're talking to a tremendous tremendous advocate of keeping democracy alive and uh, bringing peace to the world. Our guest today is Medea Benjamin, who's written in Counterpunch, a wonderful magazine uh, called uh, Ten Surprisingly Good Things That Happened in 2022. And in 2022, freedom of the press has been under attack like I have never seen. Brave truth-tellers like Julian Assange were nearly universally, aggressively attacked. 
his uh, his credibility was was really attacked. Uh, I, I, I don't know about you know any reality here, but listeners in North America have probably heard nothing. But you say, uh, Medea, you say his in- mainstream international support grew in 2022. That's interesting. Tell us about that, please. Well, what's so interesting is the very papers that initially published the WikiLeaks documents 12 years ago, that is the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, El Pais, and Der Spiegel, have finally, after 12 years, called on Biden to free Assange. Uh, There's also been a change of government in Australia, and you know Assange is an Australian citizen, and the new prime minister has been urging the U.S. government to uh, drop its case against Assange. So that is a very positive thing. And then we have people all over the world, presidents around the world, who are calling on the U.S. to stop its extradition case against Assange. And we're hoping that, hope, 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 that there will be some good news in 2023. It could be. And it's interesting to me how often people get furious at the leakers, but somehow don't look at what was leaked. <laughs> what was That's right. was really That's right. important, and it was a brave thing to do. Yes, there's another uh, whistleblower, Daniel Hale, who most people have never heard of. Right. I don't know if you've heard of him, Bert. No, I have not. Do tell. So he is a... Uh, He was a drone operator, and he leaked information about how the drones were killing civilians and how off their targets they were, even though these are the, quote, most precise uh, instruments, uh, but that they didn't know who they were killing uh, so much of the time. And so he leaked this information with data connected to it, And uh, for that, he has been in federal prison and he is um, uh, has been kept in very bad conditions. Part of it in isolation. Mm. I'm trying to go visit him. And well, we're uh, very proud of this uh, young man who took these risks, just like Chelsea Manning did Mm -hmm. uh, to try to get this information out to the public. This is information that we need desperately to know what our government is doing. We put ourselves forth, Bert, as this great democracy, Mm -hmm. uh, but then we keep the American people in the dark, especially about foreign policy. And so people like Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, Daniel Hale, uh, John Kiriakou, Thomas Drake, uh, these whistleblowers Mm -hmm. have been so important and so mistreated, abused, by our government, and it's not just the time they face in prison, it's also the PTSD that they get after they're out of prison, the difficulty they have finding jobs afterwards because they're blacklisted in many places. Uh, So it's very, very sad. And to have somebody like Julian Assange, who has been so tortured and, uh, and abused for, as you said, revealing information that didn't get anybody uh, in the U.S. government killed, uh, but revealed to the American people the killing that was going on uh, is just a terrible blight. And speaking of blights, let's also recognize that yesterday was the 21st anniversary of the opening of the Guantanamo prison. And we held some vigils here in Washington, D.C., 
uh, recognizing the 35 men now aged and many of them quite ill who are still in that prison with no due process and the hundreds and hundreds over 800 people who have been through that prison um, is you know something that many people in uh, other parts of the world particularly in the muslim world know about very well and yet how many people knew that or know that the Guantanamo prison is still open and is still keeping three dozen men in there, most of whom have never even been tried and convicted of anything? Well, one of the things that's said in, uh, in many programs is you have to take a full and fearless look at yourself and what we're doing and we don't want to do that we'll, it's like the u.s would do anything except look at the causes of why people get up and leave the causes of why people are so angry at us the causes of our economic difficulty we just don't want to look at that we want to look away and look at the easy things and just go to the store or go online and buy a whole bunch of stuff that'll yeah that'll fill us up <laughs> Now, among your points about the the 10 surprisingly good things that happened in 2022 is that Indigenous and Global South voices were finally heard at the largest climate summit, which was COP27. What's the significance of these developments in terms of climate change and justice for the world's Indigenous? Yes, I think, um, well, the COP27... Uh, was full of lobbyists for the companies, particularly the dirty fuel companies. Um, It was also full of indigenous people and their voices were really highlighted. Um, It was very uh, positive to hear many of them speaking at the press conferences, at the panels, and a recognition that it is indigenous learning that is so critical to figuring out how to deal with the climate crisis and live at one with the planet. So we think it's very important that there has been this uplifting of indigenous voices. Yeah, that's been that's been visible. I've seen some of the the photographs, and 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 you can see uh, indigenous people there. And boy, we got a lot to learn from them about how to live in this world. That is for sure, for sure. Uh, along, Absolutely. Along similar lines, something called Thirty by Thirty came out of the CCOP fifteen Biodiversity Summit in Canada, which I've heard very little about. Tell us about the good news on that, please. That biodiversity conference is something we've heard very little about in the United States. But when you have 200 countries that are coming together uh, to talk about how we're going to uh, save the millions of species on this planet that are facing extinction uh, and came up with a plan to stem that loss of diversity, um, that was a very positive thing as well. Of course, the question in all these cases is what will... um, what will come as a result of that, how much of what they agree to will actually be implemented. And there, it depends Uh, a lot on the grassroots pressure to make it happen. Grassroots pressure. You know, people, it it does, it disturbs me how how often people sort of give up and think, oh, there's nothing we can do. Uh, This country is just owned by the corporations. But there is, there are actions we can take that do matter. I mean, even the Supreme Court pays attention to that. Uh, 
and this this we can actually uh, accomplish things and i think that's that's been shown in 2022 is it the revolution that you know was dreamed about in the late 60s well no but it doesn't quite happen that way yeah, i mean i i may be to the right of of many people on the left thinking that well uh incremental steps you know they're not nothing they're not nothing it, it can help get us there um and one of the things that happened in, in 2022, of course, was uh, uh, major construction projects, uh, like, for example, at the 2022 World Cup. There's, there was, you know, a lot of the workers pay, paid a heavy price for that, you know, the, the, these countries showing off. Um, but aside from being something for which Latin, America's, Latin American countries could cheer in the World Cup, the 2022 World Cup was significant for the hopes of Palestine. I didn't know that. Please share that with it with the listeners. Well, yes. I mean, it was so interesting, you know, having the World Cup in Qatar. There was a lot of focus on some of the problems of Qatar itself. For example, the yeah. abuse of uh, of uh, workers that come from other countries. They're called quote guest workers, uh-huh. uh, and. Um, yeah, and and that was important to shine a light on that. But one issue that the the light was shined on is the issue of Palestine, and this is something that was very spontaneous. It was coming from some of the players themselves on the field, and it was coming from uh, the people in the stadiums who were uh, pulling out their Palestinian flags, who were chanting "Free Palestine," and there were videos that went viral of. Israeli reporters who were very surprised when they said they were from Israel at the reaction that they got. Um, Many of the people saying, we don't want to talk to you. Uh, And I think it was a wake-up call for a lot of people uh, from Israel in the sports world and beyond to recognize that while many of the governments of the Arab countries, because of the arm-twisting done by Donald Trump, we're signing on to agreements with Israel that the Arab street is still very much with Palestine. And it's going to be hard uh, for those leaders um, to actually embrace Israel in any significant way uh, without feeling the backlash from their people. And it does one very obvious result of 2022. Well, it was was what happened in the government of Israel with uh, uh, Netanyahu coming back yet again, and and including these really far right, definitely anti democratic, clearly racist, uh, ultra right wing people. Uh, how I, I wonder how that might be actually might turn into being uh, some, some good news, kind of a, a, a wake up call, as you say. Well, yes, in that sense, it takes away the veneer. Uh, You know, we always hear that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Well, not if you're Palestinian. And it takes away that veneer and shows the government for what many more and more people have been calling it. Uh, Jimmy Carter, a man before his time, was doing it a long time ago, uh, which is an apartheid state. And uh, and I think in that sense, um, 
it's going to be a year of reckoning. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a very hard year for the Palestinians because Ben Kavir uh, is so provocative uh, in his uh, insistence on going to um, the uh, Temple Mount, the holy site of worship for the uh, Arabs in the um, Al-Aqsa Mosque. And then um, his, his uh, uh, pronouncements and the fact that he is going to be in charge of a lot of these places that are so contested and um, is going to use his provocations to gain notoriety among his right-wing followers. And this is really going to create a lot more uprising among Palestinians, unfortunately, a lot more uh, deaths by at the hands of the Israeli soldiers. Um, but if we're looking for that little ray of light, it will be that perhaps uh, here in the United States, there might be a chance to get some recognition and some at least minor um, uh, conditioning of the almost $4 billion a year uh, that the U.S. is giving to Israel. I know we're supposed to look for good points, but on the bad points, I also have to say that the largest foreign policy group in the United States is uh, the one called APAC. And they have increased their power tremendously because they used to only be a uh, uh, what's called a C3 organization, a nonprofit group, that would do educational work uh, and would encourage other uh, pro-Israel groups to give their money to certain politicians. But now they've decided to have their own political packs and they've been giving out large amounts of money to try to counter progressives from being elected and to put up uh, more conservative progressives in their place. And they just held a, a political meeting in Washington, D.C., right. where the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, went to speak to them. I find that quite remarkable uh, that our Secretary of Defense would go speak to a political group uh, that is in favor of supporting an extremely repressive government in Israel. Uh, and yet that's seen as OK mm. uh, in Washington's circles. Boy, I, I, I do think that, you know, th- there is some change going on there. And they can, you know, the, the, f- the fact that they're fighting so hard that they've changed their, uh, their, their function from being a public affairs committee to a political action committee, that maybe they're starting to feel some pressure that, I mean, there are quite a few Jewish Americans in the world uh, or, or in America and who are saying, hey, you know, this ain't right. This is not what Judaism is about. We used to, we've always fought against racism and against injustice. So maybe, maybe this is, I mean, maybe I'm putting on my Pollyanna hat here and thinking that maybe they're feeling the pressure to do something about it. Yeah, no, I think there's a certain truth to that. And a younger Jewish members of the community are um, much more critical of Israel. There are groups like of young people like If Not Now, and then there's the group Jewish Voice for Peace, yes. and even the more middle-of-the-road group J Street yes. uh, that has um, been increasing uh, its representation in 
Congress. So certainly they're feeling the pinch. And when you have um, people like, I don't know if you follow the latest controversy about Ken Roth not getting a um, professorship. uh, I think a a position at the Harvard Kennedy School Mm -hmm. um, because Human Rights Watch had come out with a very good and detailed report about the repression in in Israel um, has caused a huge stir. And now there's a a call uh, by a lot of people, even from within the Kennedy School, for the dean to resign. So these kinds of things are going to be more uh, uh, come to the fore during this year, as you said, when the uh, it's so clear how repressive the Israeli government is uh, how can you continue to allow these things to happen here in the United States of giving unconditional support to this government? Well, I just want to, I, I have a friend of mine, uh, uh, Patrick Lawrence, who maybe you know, he's written about uh, the world after the American century. We had the American century after World War II, when the U.S. clearly dominated the world's agenda. Do you, do you see us, I'd like to see a more multipolar world. I, I despise nationalism, as I suspect you do too. And are we, do you see signs that we're starting to move toward a multipolar world, one that is, where, where the American century is something that uh, was but is, is starting to fade? And in what ways is this a good thing? Absolutely. I think it's an essential thing. And it's good for us at home, too. I mean, this idea that the U.S. has the right and the obligation to uh, it has not been good for us here at home. We talked about how much money we're spending on the military that could be invested in domestic issues. Uh, But then there's also the issue of uh, a multipolar world would free up, um, I think, a lot of... uh, uh, would move us in the direction of uh, a world in which we vied for uh, countries' cooperation. Yeah. And you have the grouping of countries called the BRICS, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Huh. Uh, they make up over 30% of the world's population. And there are now about two dozen large countries that want to join the BRICS. And this is really an alternative. And then you have with the sanctions on Russia and the um, hostility towards China, much more of a movement to have world trade not just be done in dollars, uh, but bilateral trade is being done more and more uh, with uh, going around the dollar. And this is part of building up this multipolar world. And while the Ukraine situation is so uh, dangerous and uh, we have to condemn the invasion of Ukraine, it has also shown that countries around the world, in particular in the global south, don't want to take sides in what they see as a proxy Ah. war between superpowers. And I think there's going to be in 2023 much more a return to the idea of a non-aligned movement uh-huh. uh, and other alternative uh, entities like the BRICS um, that will be saying to the United States, you're not the only major force in this world. <laughs> One other thing that we hadn't mentioned, 
I, I'm just thinking about in 2022, the 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 worldwide impression of mega zillionaires of 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 guys, uh, these white guys who have oh, 200 billion dollars. They look like fools, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Elon Musk. <laughs> unbelievable. Oh, God. So maybe maybe that's a good thing. So we won't be worshiping these billionaires quite so much. Uh, fascinating. I, I, I always enjoy talking to you, uh, Medea Benjamin. If people want to follow your work, uh, Code Pink, what's, what's a website people can look to? It's codepink.org. And uh, we would love people to sign up and get our weekly alerts about things that you can do to take action on a lot of these issues to help make 2023 a better year. We'll do it together. Thank you so much, Medea Benjamin. Thanks so much. Thanks, Britt. Nice talking to you. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. First. Health service glasses, gigolos and brasses, round or skinny bottoms. Take your mum to Paris, lighting up the chalice. Wee Willie Harris. Matthew Stephen Beagle, listening to Rico. Harpo Groucho Chico. Cheddar cheese and pickle, the Vincent motorcycle. Slap and tickle. Woody Allen Darling, Dimitri and Pasquale. Bala 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 and Valari. Something else to study, phoning up a buddy, being in my nutty. Saying okie dokie, sing along a smoky, coming out a chokey. John Coltrane Soprano, Eddie Chalantana, Bona Cutlino. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, one, two, three. Yes, yes, dear, dear, perhaps next year, or maybe even never. In which case? If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.